0: I'm beginning to think. Yes, I'm beginning
1: to think. Thoughts become me. Welcome
0: to The Cost of Not Paying Attention, hosted by nationally recognized speaker Janine hamner Holman. Janine knows what it takes to attract and retain world class talent. Join her here each week on The Cost of Not Paying Attention as we use brain science, leadership, management, and real-life challenges managers face to explore the places
1: where we aren't paying attention.
0: Welcome to The Cost of Not Paying Attention. I'm your host, Janine Hamner-Holman. What am I paying attention to today? The power of empathy. We've been hearing so much lately about empathy and empathy is one of those things that if you are naturally empathetic, or if you've studied emotional intelligence, or if you've gotten an introduction to empathy, you understand its power. And a lot of what we're hearing today is sort of like, be empathetic. And if you don't know what empathy is, it's super hard to be empathetic. And empathy is really about Getting into somebody else's emotional shoes and then even going the next step and feeling their feelings with them. Which brings me right into our guest for today. Dr. Brian Harmon is such a wonderful guy. He is a passionate and energetic executive coach who is focused on helping his clients achieve extreme levels of trust in their leadership teams. And we're gonna dive into that part in particular, but we will probably uh, talk about some of these other things as well. He is a three-time TEDx speaker and leadership professor from Los Angeles that's married to his first childhood love. Aww, Aww. <laughs> After surviving a rare bone disease and enduring four spine surgeries, he ditched his corporate job so he could go help leaders bring more love and trust into the workplace he's also obsessed with linkedin and posts daily videos there welcome
1: brian janine thank you so much my oldest brother is Jonathan Harmon so it's a JH just like you I wore my fancy mic for you today so I've got my my condenser audio technica special thanks to my friend Nate Pio for hooking me up with this bad boy thanks for having me. happy to be here I'm so
0: glad to have you Brian and I got to know each other and one of the things that I love is getting connected to people who are also in the consulting space there's a number of us and Everybody has their own individual flavor. And I, I love Brian's flavor. Brian's flavor is all about trust and it's also all about humor. So one of the things that's not in his bio is that he has a PhD. So people, he's super smart. He has a PhD in humor and connecting humor to trust and how humor can deepen and compel trust for I may not have said that perfectly, but Brian's going to clear it all up. So, Brian, tell us more about that, and tell us what's the thing that you think it would be really great if people paid more attention to today, and what's the cost of not paying attention to that thing?
1: Thank you for the great introduction. And I think it's really cool what you do to focus on empathy. Having a conversation about trust and empathy is something that in my book never gets old. So this is a, a fun conversation. Now, the reason that I wanted to study humor was because in my professional life, I didn't see a lot of it. And when I did see it, I didn't really feel included in it. I worked in construction management for 15 years. We all know that construction is sort of a hard-nosed, very aggressive, but also can be humorous type of environment. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of initiation, hazing, mobbing, that sort of blue-collar service mentality, and I'm no stranger to that. I started at the end of a hose in landscape. I installed bathroom stalls for over a year and for a couple summers with my oldest brother, Jonathan.
0: Mm.
1: And So anyways, working in that environment and then spending 15 years there and then going into biotech where it's all sensitive and people care and it's like there's no (laughs) deadlines it's like let's just do this as a team i've seen the two extremes i think in the workplace but over all of this one of the things that i found that was really unique and really got me into interest to study more and more and more about was the idea that trust is a prerequisite for humor even at a biological level one thing that people have seen, and and I didn't come up with this, this is just from past research, is we laugh with people that we trust. And one of the reasons for that, as a humor being a trust-building behavior, is for the biological reason when you lift up your neck and you go, ha, 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 you expose all those vulnerable body parts, the jugular vein, the carotid arteries, the cranial vagus nerves, the parts that are really signaling to another person that, hey, I can be open with you it's kind of intimate actually if you think about with a a romantic partner you only do those sort of vulnerable physical types of behaviors with people that you really feel you can let your guard down with so humor humor is interesting there's so many pieces like that it's it's another reason why women are better at evaluating humor than men is because humor is a a social intelligence tool women are uh, better biologically and evolutionary able to see in a partner what is their most intelligent factors. Humor is one of those. People that are funny and witty and quick with a joke have certain skills that are good for certain social uh, engagements, interactions. It's all that stuff anyways to say that trust is the foundation. I've learned that that's the most important thing. And when you get into a workplace where you see people laughing and you can always hear, maybe not jokes, but you can hear people with that lightness, that mood, it shows you're in a high trust environment. That is the indicator that to me says, that's a company that I want to spend more time in.
0: I love that distinction. That's so interesting because I had never connected that. And I'm a person who loves to laugh. I have a big laugh and I often will throw my head back. Sometimes I will throw my head forward. And so I'm now thinking about like, okay, is there a connection between the times when I throw my head forward and the times when I throw my head back having to do with trust and having to do with what my connection is to the person who's made something funny or done something funny or said something funny that I'm reacting to. But I never made the connection to high trust organizations being a place where humor is and lightness is something that can be cultivated. So I'm really interested how So when you go into an organization, and I want to give you a little plug, so Brian works with organizations that have been around for five years or more and are fairly well-established and that are really interested in creating that high-trust executive team. What else have I missed in terms of the perfect kind of organizations that you love working with?
1: One of the really key pieces, the requirements that I require before I start engaging with a client is that to your original point, they have to have a purpose that's driven by empathy. If they're aggressive, if they're malintentioned, if they're Mm. very self-serving, if their only purpose is to just exit and make money, I don't have much interest in working with that kind of a leader. It doesn't fuel me or jazz me up or get me excited about working with someone. I want to be with the kind of leader that hey, maybe, maybe they're not doing everything right, but at least their purpose, their intention is, I want to build a more empathetic workplace. And that's not easy. It's not like, like <laughs> listening. So not. People say, uh, oh, well, I was just listening. Actually, it's not just listening. Listening is a really hard thing to do. Yeah, uh, it's quite a skill. We don't give people enough credit. Like the good listeners out there, these are rare individuals. And one of the things that I like to tell my clients is that you need to let people know that you're listening. So not just active listening and the normal stuff, but repeat and clarify and ask them, am I understanding this right? Because if they say, yes, that's right, now that's an indicator back to you saying, oh, I get them and they get me. That is what empathy is. And this whole golden rule, like treat people how you want to be treated, I actually hate that. I think it's extremely arrogant. I want to treat Janine the way Janine wants to be treated. I want to treat... Joe, the way Joe wants to be treated, not the way I want to be treated, because Brian has had, I have different wants and needs. We're different people. So in order to get into that level of depth and empathy, you must be so, so present, such a good listener. Um, That level of effort is just, I've only seen it a few times in my whole career so far, so.
0: It's a special kind of leader and, One of the things that I've been working with a couple of clients recently on is growth mindset and fixed mindset. And the places where we're in a fixed mindset and just sort of 10,000 foot fixed mindset is I am good at math. I am super smart and probably better than you if really I tell the truth, like when you really get into fixed mindset, it's a lot of, because my self-identification is connected to, I am smart. I am good at math. I am intuitive. I am good at chemistry, which I'm not, I'm not good at math or chemistry. Then if that's how I self-identify, then anything that threatens that, that threatens me being good at math or good at chemistry or smart, I can't tolerate because it is a direct affront to who I hold myself to be. Versus in a growth mindset, Mm -hmm. I might feel smart, I might feel like I'm not really good at math, which is actually the way that I hold myself. I'm not really good at math. and. When I focus on it, when I really try, when there's something about it that I actually care about, so I'm a really good scuba diver, and to get to be a really good scuba diver, you actually have to understand math and physics and all kinds of things that are not my strong suit. But I love scuba diving, so I got good at those pieces of that thing to enable me to enjoy this thing that I love. So... That's the growth mindset. And and I'm rereading a book by Carol Dweck, who is sort of the pioneer of growth mindset and fixed mindset. First person to sort of uncover these distinctions. And she's talking about various leaders who we've all heard of and sports figures who we've all heard of and where they are in terms of growth mindset and fixed mindset. And so Lee Iacocca, Is one of the people that she loves to point to in the fixed mindset. What Lee Iacocca really cared about was Lee Iacocca. And when he got expelled from Ford, that was such a crushing blow to his ego that then who he became was somebody to prove to Ford that he was better than them. And that was his whole mission at Chrysler. And so he brought Mm. Chrysler up to this huge pinnacle, but then really became about promoting Lee Iacocca and Chrysler then started declining and he couldn't get out of his own way in order to help Chrysler be what Chrysler needed to be because he was about (laughs) who Lee Iacocca was. And so when you go into organizations where people are You know and we all sway in that we are not just like we are not in a growth mindset we are not one thing we are also not either always in a growth mindset or always in a fixed mindset it's much more challenging when we are in a fixed mindset but even those of us who really understand this we're not always in a growth mindset we fall back into fixed mindset because we're humans so when you're working with organizations And you've got somebody who's really interested in creating that high trust, creating that empathetic experience for his people, her people, really learning how to listen. Tell me about how you bring in humor, because I think that's so interesting. How do you bring that in and have that be part of what people begin to experience in a different way?
1: The growth mindset and the fixed mind is coincidentally related to this. I mean, just... Thinking about the undertones of why you and I are talking right now, we're, we're both in the same field, seemingly competitors, yet why would we be collaborating? So this idea, this is a, a very much like about relational trust with you and me. We're telling each other our stories, sharing our experiences. We're building up that base of the pyramid right now. And it's a very much growth mindset because if you were going to go and collaborate with your competitors, then, then you'd you'd have to be in a growth mindset. Whereas someone that's fixed would be like, I don't want to share my secrets. I don't want to be around people like me. But but actually I found exactly the opposite happens is once you break down that that weird concept of competition doesn't actually really exist. When you get out of that, when you shake free of that box or boundary, then you find this, what we're doing, having just an open conversation about stuff that like I don't know where this conversation is going to take us. And already I'm learning cool things from you. Like I've never been, I've never studied the growth mindset. I don't know a lot about it, but I just noticed that there's some, a, a couple of key philosophies that you just spoke about that I really resonate with. I think number one is don't see people as competition. See them as accommodators, collaborators, challengers, people who can push you into anything that can provoke new thought. And who better to do that than people that are in a similar field. If I talk to a CEO of a software company, we're gonna have less of that push and challenge to each other than you and me who both work in leadership development. And in truth, I'm far less experienced than you. So I'm coming into this like just open ears, how can I listen and take things away? I think on the humor side of things, build that base of the trust, share the stories, get on the same page, get the friendship, the rapport, that the positive emotions that are going back and forth, you can hear smiles, like you can hear, it doesn't have to be laughter, it doesn't have to be audible, but you can hear when there's a good vibe. Mm-hmm. It just feels like it's just, there's an emotion, there's a vibe, I don't know, just kind of feel it. And yeah. once there's that, I'm more apt to use humor now. I'm mm-hmm. more in the place of being ready for like, okay, I'm, now I can start to look for a couple of funny things like that, that might be uh, joke worthy or story worthy as a secondary. Now, the first thing though, I wanna I want to take humor off the table. The purpose of humor is really just to make people smile. And so even if it, it doesn't have to be a joke, it doesn't have to be some entertainer audience, like I'm performing right now, it just has to be about a smile. It's, that's enough. That's more than enough actually. And if you're making someone smile, you've already done the hard work. So yeah, that's cool. I think humor is is maybe like the X games of, of workplace communication, just like negotiation, just like conflict resolution. The base though, uh, you, you never have to deal with any of that stuff if you can't get through the base of trust. That's the building block 101.
0: One of the things that I've been really interested in lately, obviously, you know, we are living through some unprecedented times and they're unprecedented on a number of levels. You know, we're all at various levels, depending upon where we live in the country, dealing with, and where we live in the world, dealing with COVID-19. We are all dealing with the uncertainty that comes with that. And uh, as as I know that you know, and I know that our listeners know, because I talk about it all the time, I'm just like Brian is obsessed with LinkedIn and many other things. I'm obsessed with brain science and why our brain does what it does and one of the things that our brain is obsessed with is our safety. And you know I'm glad that there's a part of my body that's obsessed with my safety. and it'd be really helpful if there was like a dial where we could where we could dial it back because when our brain equates safety to certainty, And it's the reason that we'll pick fights with people just to get to certainty. Our brain hates uncertainty and we are swimming in a world of uncertainty. And here in the US, especially here in California, we're also dealing with all of this uncertainty around our economy and around, I was just talking with somebody yesterday whose young son was going to school for the first time on December 9th. And he's five. And my buddy has all these complicated feelings about his son going to school. Of course, you know, there's that, oh, my baby's going to school. But then there's also, oh, my baby's going to school in the middle of a pandemic. And like, is he really going to be safe? And am I doing the right thing? And his son is so excited about getting to go to school and getting to be with other kids, which kids are missing. You know, we grownups are missing being with other people a lot. And the our little people are really missing it at a level that I think is hard for us to really comprehend because their socialization brains are still so much in formation. They're really missing that. That connection, and you know, we've got all of this uncertainty about the economy, and we've got all this uncertainty in national, definitely, and international, probably, conversation around race and equity and justice that is generations overdue. And in this country, we are living still, <laughs> it seems, uh, through an election and through sort of, it certainly feels like the most polarized this nation has ever been. And I've been talking with a couple of different organizations recently about that issue around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And one of the things that I talk about is this component of trust. Because in my experience, in my opinion, Diversity is essentially an HR issue, like you can hire for diversity. You get people who are different from whatever the norm is, and then you've got diversity. The challenge is that if you don't have a high trust organization, if you don't have psychological safety, inside that organization where it's cool to, for me to be whatever it is that's not the norm, whether that's black or brown or Asian or whether it's rich or poor or working class or whether it's straight or gay or transgender or, you know, whatever the factors of diversity are, if it's not safe for me to be that, then I'm going to leave or I'm going to suppress it. And obviously you know if I'm black and uh, my husband who's walking around happens to be black if you're black there's not much you can do to suppress your your blackness and the reason that organizations the best organizations are looking for diversity is because we make so much better decisions when we have a diverse organization, we are so much more agile, we are so much more resilient through diversity. So it's not just a, you know, we want to do the right thing or we want to look right or politically correct. There are real strong business reasons to be diverse. And I see such a connection between high trust organizations that you're all about creating and diversity, equity and inclusion. Is that something that you bring in to the organizations that you work with?
1: Yeah. And if I, I not, see those... can it be now? <laughs> yeah, it, it has been. And it it's because I see a lot of those as synonyms, equality, inclusion, sense of belonging, diversity. They're all trust. And if you look at the organizations that are thriving right now, they're the ones that are resilient and adaptive to change. But that's because they have leaders who build trust, who have psychological safety. so And their employees generously contribute creativity and good ideas. But- if the leader is one who's been getting off the hook far too easily and has been letting this environment fester pre pandemic where people just kind of clock in, do their work and balance, they're not doing well right now. So surprise, surprise, trust adds up. And the economics are clear. If, if you've built that over time, then it costs you less and you can get stuff done faster. So it's like not just change and resilience, but you can, you can act, you can take quick action. So when unprecedented external factors like a pandemic hit us, what are you going to do? Can you adapt? Can you move? Can you shake? Can you get things put into motion? Like some companies are still barely going remote. We've been here for nine months. What are you doing messing around with remote at this point? Like, that should have taken you four days back in March. So yeah, leaders, if they're not focused on trust, if they're not making a real deliberate trust plan, if they're not using their core values to drive their decisions, if they're not purpose-centered and getting, getting trust as a differentiating factor within their workplace strategy, their culture strategy, then shame on them and they don't deserve to be thriving right now. And a lot of them aren't and they're not surviving.
0: So if we have listeners out there who are organizational leaders, either they're leaders in terms of their position in the organization or they're leaders in terms of their impact in an organization, and they're thinking, oh, man, I don't think we have a high trust organization, but this sounds like it'd be a really good thing for us to start working on. In addition, obviously, to hiring you, what would be a way that they could get started? What would be sort of the first baby steps that it would be great for an organization or an organizational leader to
1: start taking? So trust, a shocking statistic, but maybe I guess I'm not surprised. There was a study that shows almost 60% of people trust strangers more than their boss. And the reason for that is because every daily interaction wow. within the workplace can do three things. It can be trust improving, trust neutral, or trust degrading. Corporate America has... Shown us time and time again that the manager subordinate relationship is not healthy. You there's Gallup analytics, statistics, all that kind of stuff. It's out there and it's real. And it's it's not just like some companies. It's 85% of people are mentally checked out from their jobs. So this is a, a systemic chronic issue. And trust on an institutional level has been taken a dump since the 50s. Right. So there's who's responsible? Leaders are responsible. You don't have to have like. Yeah, you could hire me, but you don't even have to do that. Pick up a book. Like, There's some really good information out there that's been disseminated that uh, allows you to take action. Stephen M. R. Covey wrote The Speed of Trust. That's a really good book.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It got me so amped about trust. I dedicated my whole PhD to it. That's a small baby step that someone could take in a day that would make a massive difference in what they do and how they see trust and understanding the benefits and importance of it as a differentiating strategic factor as a leader. Some of the other things you can do outside of that is really take notice of self-reflection. So shaking a hand, there's a way to shake someone's hand and build trust and there's a shitty way to shake a hand. So. <laughs> Is your heart facing their heart? Are your shoulders parallel? Do you actually smile when you look into their eyes? Do you understand the color of their eyes? Was there no eye contact? Or did you do that weird, like, side shake?
0: Even the or did time- you give them a limp, dead fish? This is my least, yeah. like, Like really? <laughs> I don't want to shake that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I, I use the, the match pressure plus 5%. Ah, I love <laughs> my, it. Kind of my rule. This will sound creepy, but it actually feels really good is the, the oxytocin trust molecule, the thing that's released during sex, childbirth, hugs, high fives, even any skin to skin contact is the oxytocin molecule. When I shake hands, I like to go a little bit deeper into the bloodline here huh. so that you can give that person that little boost of oxytocin. Don't pat them on the shoulder. Don't double pat their hand. Don't exert extra control. Just give them a nice a little bit extra pressure, like f- not 20%, 5% extra pressure, enough eye contact to get the color of their eyes and then to give them a smile. So that's, it's a simple handshake, but it goes all the way into how you send your emails, how you fill up the, the relationship bucket with positivity so that when you need to give constructive feedback that you're not going from a place of that's all you give them. So I think, yeah, read some books, take some self reflection, understand your activities. We've all bad had bad managers, but sometimes we're the bad managers and we think we're not the problem. Statistics tell us otherwise.
0: I love that reality and I did a webinar a little while ago on listening. We were talking earlier about listening and how much of a skill listening is and there is something called the International Journal of Listening. Like Who who knew? And according to them, on average, people spend 2% of their time at work listening, which I found startling. And of course, you know, there's some professions in which you don't have to listen at all. You're a toll taker or you're a, you know, something where you have essentially no contact with people. But then there's other professions in which you have enormous contact with people and still, on average, 2%. Like, holy cow. And it's like 91% of employees think that their manager doesn't listen. And we know that 90% of managers have never been trained to be a good manager. And so one of the things that I said in that webinar is if 91% of employees think that their manager doesn't listen, it's likely that that includes you, even if you think you're a good listener. And I love the, the tips and ideas that you gave about how to communicate that really you're being present and you're listening and you're connected to them and you're checking in with, you know, did I get it? Did I get it
1: right? Improv humor is a good one, Janine. Yeah. That's a, that's, I think the greatest way to learn how to listen is improv humor.
0: Okay. Tell me more I- about that.
1: Yeah, so I I did a study last year, an independent survey study with 100 people in it, and I asked leaders what was the most crucial skill of a leader, and they said listening, but then on the second part of the survey, I was asking them what are their most trained skills, and listening ranked last. (laughs) Not a lot of people are attending classes and courses on listening, and I think it's so cool that you did a whole webinar dedicated to it. It's an important, underrated underserved topic and improv is to me one of the great ways to practice it the improv teachers that i've had really changed my life when it came to listening because all you do in in improvisational humor is listen and then act listen and then act listen and then act and the ones that are really good the funny people they have a weird sense of presence they're they're way more engaged than than the rest of the population yeah so I would highly encourage people to jump in. There's a bunch of open enrollment type improv humor classes out there, uh, that, that the different improv theaters put on. I've taken maybe 15 of them at this point, and there is no lack of fun and humor and listening involved in those sessions, so. Highly recommend.
0: Oh, I love that suggestion. That's awesome. And, you know, we're in this time where we're all so distant. That sounds like something that could be super fun. And even if you're doing it over, over Zoom, could be connecting and could be, you know, helping to, to train up that skill. hmm Which brings me to, in this time when so many people are supervising others, trying to manage themselves and manage other people over Zoom, where organizational culture is becoming much more diffuse because we're not connected in the same way of presence where where we were, if you had some suggestions for what people could do in this time when we're so disconnected from each other to help keep that trust alive. Do you have thoughts about about tips and
1: tricks that managers and employees could use? Certainly. It's such a good question, Janine. Easiest thing and the thing that I ask my clients to do is take the explicit time to schedule personal stories. Would that uh, includes, I use Freytag's framework. Uh, Gustav Freytag, a couple hundred years ago, made an adaptation from Aristotle's three-act play, and it goes context, problem, climax, resolution, call to action, or or denouement. And the way that I like to encourage my clients to use this framework is by setting up time one-on-one with all your direct reports and sharing your personal story. Mm. So the personal story would go from birth until what got you into the room today. What are the big turning points that you've overcome? What are the happiest personal and professional moments that you've had? What are the big achievements? What is your purpose? That's, a, I think, a really simple meeting. It's 30 to 60 minutes, and it'll be something that seems really cheesy. Like, oh, let's share personal stories. But every time you get off that phone, you'll be so glad that you did that. It's it's the most high-value, high-impact Way that you can connect with someone on a relational trust level, whether or not you and I share an exact personal story, there will be little snippets and pieces that you and I had no idea we could have ever possibly related on. I dropped out of college to take care of my aunt who had a brain aneurysm. So even if you never dealt with that, maybe you've taken care of a family member who was ill. Maybe my spine surgeries. Well, maybe you've dealt with a, a personal injury. I mean, who knows? But there's only one way to find out if we have that connection and that's if we explicitly take the time to share those personal stories because we're on zoom and because we're not bumping into each other or going out to the lunch or the cafeteria or the restaurant down the street, we're not getting that time right now. And we need to say, I'm going to block this chunk of my day to go and have personal story time with the people that I really care about. And our colleagues, this is our community. This is where we live. This is where we spend all of this time. And shame on people who don't know the personal life story for the people that they work with. Like, these are our friends. <laughs> and when you build that level of admiration with your fellow colleagues, you don't let each other down. That's an extreme form of trust uh, once, you've, once you've done that. And I will also say that it's the responsibility of the leader to open up further and to open up first. So if if you think of trust as a reciprocal emotion, where I smile, you smile, like happiness is kind of reciprocal. We feel it. If it's around us, we feel it too. Same thing goes for trust. If you're going to open up and you're going to tell me some really deep, profound things about your life, if you're going to share those personal moments with me that maybe you you don't usually share with colleagues, I'm going to be a lot more apt to share that stuff with you. So. I have to go a few levels deeper than the surface and I have to give you the why, 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 why so that you'll at least maybe give me the why, why otherwise we'll just sit up in surface land. We'll never make real connections and we're all just in a shitty world. (laughs) (laughs) And in a shitty world is not where we want to be.
0: I, I love that. And you know, the power of storytelling and, when I read, you know, I've known Brian now for I don't know six months, maybe closer to a year. Time in this COVID time is very strange. But when I read that about your spine surgery, I both had a an, ah. Uh, and we have this very close family friend in our in my family of origin who went through uh, horrible cancer and had spine surgery. And I went through that with her. And so like it immediately connected me to that in my past, you know, a, a feeling of empathy and man, like spine. surgery. I mean, I've had knee surgery twice. I mean, knee surgery sucks, but spine surgery is at a whole other level of suckage. And so there was just like a, oh, Brian for spine surgeries. And then it connected me with Peggy, who passed away a number of years ago from this fucking cancer, but it connected me back to her, who I love. And so it then created this love transference. I got connected to Peggy, which also connected me to you. So for leaders who feel like, well, that all sounds touchy feely and weird and like one of the things that i would really love if we could find a new word for is vulnerability because that that's part of what you're talking about is the opportunity and the need to be vulnerable first and you know we all know it sucks to say i love you first like those moments of getting out there putting ourselves out there putting our heart or our emotions on the line making our soft, tender spots vulnerable to other people. It's scary. And in our culture and in Western culture, we have equated vulnerability with all kinds of pejorative things. And, you know, it means that you're soft. It means that you're a wimp. It means that you're a pussy. It means that, you know, I mean, all kinds of pejorative things. And so, how do you help somebody who does not have a muscle built in being vulnerable and in being vulnerable with people who report to them? How can they lean into that feeling of uncomfortableness? Because as we know, the first time you try something, you're not so good at it and it feels uncomfortable. How can we get started in that to help model that for the people that we really want to connected to and you know we're talking about business obviously but this is true in romantic relationships it's true in relationships with friends and with children and with siblings and you know all of those relationships where where trust and vulnerability are so important
1: to practice can make perfect if they want to try to be open I think the greatest place to always start something like that is either with a coach or a mentor. Mm-hmm. If they then open that up a little bit further and then practice with a friend, then maybe they practice with a colleague, then they can start to see like, wow, there there is a lot of value in that. Just my openness can, can help me. One of the things that I do, uh, by design like for example I, I teach as a leadership professor but i wear a hat and a hoodie in class because i don't want there to be a power distance and this h- hierarchy differential that creates the vibe that's not necessary and i practice openness i purposefully polarize my potential prospect clients it might so sound what, great what does on- that
0: mean brian you pot- you you intentionally polarize
1: your prospect clients even though I have a, a PhD and like it seems like, oh, he's, he's got his shit together, I didn't have my shit together for a long time. I had issues with alcohol, with drugs, with depression, anxiety, that whole four spine surgery thing. Physically, yeah, it sucked, but mentally, it was way worse than, oh, than yeah. the physical. And I've been arrested before. Like It wasn't all cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I tell my story, and that's why I post those videos on LinkedIn, because if that's a problem for the people that I work with, if that level of openness doesn't vibe with you we're probably not a good match to work together Mm -hmm. because i want to show people that that level of openness is going to be powerful you are going to relate with more people you're going to open up your sphere of influence your level of influence how to maximize your relationships by practicing that openness and the leaders that i work with that do the worst are the ones that don't open up but some people call it vulnerability and weakness i call it openness and strength and one of my big heroes on the subject, Brene Brown, she's talked about this in, in all of her books. I read them cover to cover. And for me, it's, that's what's working. And I think if, if, if there's people out there that say, nah, that's too much for me, it's business, 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 professional, professional. I just ask them to take a real hard look at, how's that working for you? Mm-hmm. Are you happy with that? Is that as far as you're willing to go?
0: I had somebody ask me the other day, how do I take the emotion out of work? Like, well, you die. Like that,
1: because humans, we, we
0: <laughs> right? Go oh, I mean,
1: swallow a ninja star, you're dead.
0: <laughs> because what is, is that humans are, in fact, feeling beings that think. We want to believe that we are, or some of us want to believe that we are thinking beings that sometimes feel. But that's not how we're wired. We are, in fact, feeling beings that think. And so the only way, actually, to take emotion out of work is to have it all be automated, to take humans out of work. So then really the question is, how do you have the emotion be productive? How do you have the emotion move things forward? How do you have the emotion be, all right, if there's conflict, Let's deal with it. And I've been on a rant recently about the difference between nice and kind. And nice, you know, if you look it up, it's essentially about being amiable, not rocking the boat. Being kind is that openness. Being kind is caring about somebody and being willing to speak truth to power. We can be kind and be strong and powerful and open and speak hard truths when they need to be spoken. And if you know that I really care about you, it's a lot easier to hear something hard from me. And as managers, as leaders, there are times when hard things need to be said. And so leaning into that, I think, is something
1: that sets people and sets organizations apart. On the same topic, I think that managers, if if you have any direct reports, one thing you have to know is when you're going to give feedback, you're probably not accurate with the feedback. Research shows that more than half of feedback is completely inaccurate or partially inaccurate. So if you're going to give constructive feedback, only say what you observed and then turn it into a dialogue by asking probing questions. Simple as that. Hear the person out and then have the discussion. Don't assume that you know what, what, what's happening. and Then you just turn constructive feedback into a trust building behavior, not a trust destroying behavior. Turn it into a dialogue.
0: That's brilliant. I love that. And, you know, one of the things that we know is that when it always makes me think of the movie Pretty Woman, when Julia Roberts says, you know, why are the hard things so much easier to believe? And our brain is wired, we hear criticism so much more than we hear praise and it's the reason why in romantic relationships in friendships in professional relationships it's important to praise a significant amount more like four or five times more than we give feedback that's harder to hear and i love that it's back to that growth mindset it's back to assuming we don't know so i have a perception This is what my perception is of you, of what's going on, of your performance, of what I need, of, you know, whatever. And now let's have a conversation about it. And as you said, you know, that then builds the trust as opposed to what so often happens in organizations that it ends up eroding trust. That may be your one last thing, but before we end, I want to give you an opportunity. If there's one thing that you were like, oh, man, I was really hoping we'd touch on this or, you know, you now have a microphone. What's one thing that you would love for people to hear where you would love to leave people for today?
1: I would ask that people, if they want to really listen, if they want to practice this stuff that we're talking about, that they only take the opportunity to answer after they've paused. So when when you were just saying that, I didn't know what to say. So I just waited until I fully hear, heard your thought, then I paused, then I responded. So if you want to be a good listener, don't reply. Just listen and then if it ends up being a question at the end, just pause, think about it for a second, then answer the question. There's nothing wrong with, with a pause. The pause is powerful. It's where you get your silence. It's where you think. It's where your best energy comes from. And you should get into that place of silence too while you're listening and just hear all the words that someone's saying. That would be my one tip.
0: I love it. Brilliant. Thank you, Dr. Brian Harmon. I really appreciate your time, your insights, your brilliance, your humor. This has been such a fun conversation. I hope you all have enjoyed it as well. I'm Janine Hamner-Holman, and this has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Remember, great leaders make great teams. Until next time. On behalf of Janine Hamner-Holman, thanks for paying attention. This has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Head on over to our website, www.janinehamner.com forward slash podcast for access to the show notes as well as additional resources. Remember, great leaders make great teams.